Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies. Which is every year. Jason's already singing. Man. I don't even remember which song that is, but uh, we're here in the... Plays over the credits. They play it like seven times in the movie, Josh. There's a bunch of songs. I don't know. That one didn't stand out to me, I guess. It'd be like if you watched The Graduate and I did Mrs. Robinson. You're like, I don't remember that song. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's just the quality of your singing isn't really capturing the song uh, you're you're right i do not have the the same vocal mellifluous tones as gerard mcmahon i'll give you that that's thank mm. you for acknowledging that we are talking about the films of 1987 and for jason because he always loves it we happen to be in the week of halloween here as this is coming out so we decided to do a special halloween themed 1987 episode in between our usual categories and so we are talking about the teen vampire movie the lost boys featuring that song apparently (laughs) yes good (laughs) promo josh i do love the holiday episodes i love researching and picking which ones to do but i think our audience loves it too because josh other than you scrooge mcjosh people love the holidays yeah well i i don't mind halloween um more so than than other holidays. I do love the spooky and the macabre, and I love horror movies. I don't like this movie, but other horror movies, other Halloween-themed movies I enjoy. I got to tell you, so after, you know, I act in BattleBots, and my character wears, like, all black and face paint and has, like, a goth-style hood on, and after watching this movie, I felt much more comfortable in my wardrobe. And I was like, I should get a motorcycle and a gang to drive up in my entrance here. So Definitely. a vampire gang. See if BattleBots will spring for a motor- motorcycle for you. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I uh, need some work because we're going on hiatus in uh, November uh, because of uh, F1. So if you got any jobs, I'm, I'm ready. for. Uh, I'm ready. Hire Jason. <laughs> That's the purpose of his podcast now. <laughs> What what is happening? Oh, we're talking about the Lost Boys, which is a vampire film directed by Joel Schumacher, and uh, starring. This is one of those '80s movies, and I I'm not sure. Have we talked about movies like this before, where it's full of all these young stars who were sort of on the verge uh, of being really famous or were becoming really famous at the time this movie came out? I think with the John the John Hughes movies we did. Yeah, we did talk candles. about uh, yeah. 16 Candles, and this is similar. Jason Patrick, both Corey's, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, all sorts of Alex Winter, who, uh, you know, was about to be in Bill and Ted in a couple years. Lots of up-and-coming 80s stars as the young people in this film, along with Diane Wiest as the mom. Yeah, so two points. One, I think this was the first movie with both the Corey's, right? I believe so. Yeah, this is this is where they really cemented their friendship. And then they went on to star in a couple other movies in the 80s and uh, take a lot of drugs. Yeah, well, they weren't the only ones taking the drugs. And also, uh, you know, they were teenagers and they didn't have a lot of kind of authority figures looking out for them. Let's say. Sure. That. How about sure. Yeah, right? they had a lot of there were a lot of issues going on with the Corys. Yeah. And Diane Weist, uh, who we have talked about before. Indeed. She, uh, this was her first movie after her Oscar, Josh, for, uh, 
What was it? Was it Cairo? Hannah and her sisters? Was it one of those? Yeah, Hannah and her sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And what a follow up. Really, this is this is in the pantheon along with was it Eddie Murphy following Dreamgirls with Norbit? Is uh (laughs) come on, man. I mean, this is beloved though. Yeah, nobody's looking at like Norbit like 30 years later, like we gotta watch it, but everyone still loves the Lost Boys, other than you. You know, someone should stake you in the heart for that. (laughs) I will say that this is better than Norbit. But also, there are some, I guarantee you, Dave, you put this in the, the popcorn and puzzle pieces group, some weirdo will come in and defend Norbit to the death. Oh, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, it is a weird choice. I mean, even if you like this movie more than I do, it definitely is, if you think about what kind of opportunities might have come up after winning an Oscar, this doesn't seem like the most likely. And also, it, just that character is kind of a background fodder character, right? You know, right. so it, no matter what you think of the movie, it's like, you know, doesn't really showcase her skills. That is true. Yeah, she's not the lead by any means. But she's good. I feel like she was the one person in this movie who is really giving like a committed, real performance that feels like a, a, a person rather than just sort of like a, a cartoon version of something. No, I'm going to jump on that right now. Cause uh, I think, and, and I know you're going to take me to task, but Corey Haim as the lovable younger brother, comic relief, like he, he nailed it. He did great here. Yeah. I don't know if lovable is a word that I would ever apply to Corey, Haim, <laughs> but um, I know, I don't think so. I think both of the Corey's are extremely annoying in this film. And Corey Feldman is worse because he's trying to do some weird, like, like Christian Bale Batman voice or something. And it just does not work at all for his character. Nah, he's, he was ubiquitous in the 80s. He could do whatever he wants. Yeah, he could. That doesn't mean he, he was, could. So, Josh, a little background. Richard Donner produced this, right? And was going to direct it. And so because of the success of the Goonies, right? He had hired those screenwriters to... Janice Fisher and James Jeremias, and and they were going to do the basically vampire version of the Goonies, right? And then when Donner left to take over, I don't know, some lost movie called Lethal Weapon or whatever, um, and Schumacher came in, they brought in Jeffrey Bohm, they brought, they kind of concocted this horror, you know, comedy, stylish uh, piece, and that's when the tone changed. And I think so, maybe the character was originally more like Corey Feldman's character in uh in Goonies 1610 what's your what's that your high score in pole position no it was 1632 <laughs> i think was the but anyway but anyway i think he was just trying to do something different i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt cuz he was an actor in the 80s that did a lot of work yeah i mean he certainly was trying to do something different and, and yeah you know even before reading about that background watching this movie this time i thought oh this is just kind of trying to be a be the goonies and not really succeeding. Although I don't, as as we've probably discussed, because it's a point of contention, I also don't like the Goonies. But um, even so, this this feels like it's sort of riding the Goonies coattails in certain ways. Dave, we're opening our Halloween baskets saying trick or treat to Josh. And what's he given us? Pennies for UNICEF and razor blade apples. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so this movie was, it was successful, but it wasn't, as big a hit as you might think, given the fact that, as you said, Jason, it is beloved now, but it was a minor hit. It grossed $32.2 million on its budget of $8.5 million. It did win the Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, one of the, the big genre 
awards that's still going. But it wasn't a massive sensation initially. I think like we've talked about a lot with movies from the 80s and 90s, it's one that probably found a much bigger audience later on home video and on cable. I wonder if this is the kind of movie that like younger people weren't able to go see in the theater. But when it came out on VHS, they kind of snuck it in and watched it at sleepovers and stuff like that. And it became a bigger deal. There's really not that much that, you know, I don't think younger kids couldn't watch. I mean, the even the uh, love scene between Patrick and Gertz is t- tame, I would say, you know, so. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's it's rated R. So just the fact that like theaters might have been a barrier to younger kids going to see it. Well, I definitely agree. I mean, obviously, it took off even further on, um, you know, video and cable where it was probably playing constantly, especially around ha- Halloween. But um yeah. You know, you're talking about the 80s, though. Eight million budget, 30 million return is a much bigger deal than if that had happened today. This is a studio movie, right? Yeah, true. I mean, it is. I'm not saying it wasn't a hit. I guess I think given its its place as sort of a cultural touchstone. I mean, this is the reason we're talking about it here, that we picked it for this episode and not something else. And that it was also on our list of big movies from this year is because it it has this strong following still, and I think I would have imagined it might have been a bit of a bigger hit. The other reason I think that it feels like such a big hit is because, like you said, it if it didn't launch all these careers, it kind of brought them to the next strata of you know just everywhereness in the eighties, like post Brad Pack. This is that new group, right? Right, right. Yeah, it certainly was a a big uh, launch pad for a lot of these people. Uh, and it was popular with audiences. It got an A- minus from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service. And it was less popular with critics. It got kind of mixed reviews from critics. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down, but it was, it was kind of marginal. They had some nice things to say about the cast, but they felt the story was overstuffed. And so they were on the fence-ish about it. And In his written review, Roger Ebert said, Joel Schumacher has devised an ambitious entertainment that starts out well, but ends up selling its soul. There is a moment early in this film when it seems to have a handle on its characters and the after-dark teenage world they inhabit. But the ending of the film is just another one of those by-the-numbers action climaxes in which the movie is over when all the bad guys are dead. Because everything looks so good, we almost give it the benefit of the doubt. The high quality of the photography and acting had me wondering if perhaps this wouldn't develop into a genuinely frightening and interesting vampire story. But no such luck. It is no longer a virtue in mainstream Hollywood to bring any genuine, unsettling imagination to a commercial movie. I think that's a fair takedown, Josh, of the movie, because I agree that, you know, the first hour is really, really fun and kind of just moves along smoothly. And then it really just falls apart for me in act three. Um, I'm like, I don't even know what's going on here in act three, but uh, also props to Ebert for pointing out how stylish this was. I mean, I know Josh, you're not a Joel Schumacher head, uh, but you gotta, you gotta say there probably wasn't something done like this in this genre before he did this. Yeah, no, that's true. And I can acknowledge that, that, that if you like Schumacher, that his sense of style, I mean, he started out in uh, production design. And so it makes sense that he has that sense of style. And that's really what he's got going for him. And 
also this movie came out in 1987 at the height of the popularity of MTV and you can absolutely see the influence of music videos and that whole teen culture going into this film I mean which is probably a one of the reasons why they switched it up from that original Goonies type script where it was with younger kids and decided to make it about teens and that was a smart move so it does feel like a the extended music video, but that also means that it doesn't have a coherent story or interesting characters. And unless there's a kind of a music montage or whatever, there's not really much else going for it. Yeah, Schumacher himself said that, like, you know, this kind of, I guess you would call it nonlinear or image-based storytelling was a direct influence from MTV. And that's, you know, we're going to see that. We hear about it all the time, but how is the storytelling of TikTok going to bleed into films. You know, it's always something else, right? But obviously MTV had a huge influence on um, storytelling and Schumacher, who also directed music videos, was a prime candidate for this type of thing. Yeah, and I think there's there's plenty of movies where the influence of music videos is positive, And I'm sure that'll be the same with TikTok. But I think in order to successfully incorporate that influence, you have to combine it with some kind of solid filmmaking uh, from a feature film standpoint. And I just think this movie kind of falls short of that. And, and that's often the case with, with Schumacher's work in general. I went back to that book, The Ultimate History of the 80s Teen Movie, and I was uh, by James King, and I was reading The Lost Boys chapter and there's this quote from Schumacher in there. Nobody really knew what we were making. And in some ways we didn't know what we were making. I'm <laughs> not surprised to hear that quote from Joel Schumacher. Uh, so Karen James in the New York Times said, The Lost Boys is to horror movies what late night with David Letterman is to television. It laughs at the form it embraces, adds a rock and roll soundtrack, and if you share its serious satiric attitude, manages to be very funny. But this is more than a richly photographed look at Dracula's stylized sons. The film searches out the menacing undercurrents in ordinary things, capturing the eeriness of neon-bright amusement parks and grotesque funhouse faces. As the doors People Are Strange plays wittily in the background, the movie seems to ask how we can separate the seriously strange from the harmless garden variety wackos. The doors, people are strange, did not play in the background, Josh. That is true. Uh, it is Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, their cover of it. And uh, Dave, Echo and the Bunnymen, awesome. Absolutely. I covered them in concert a few years ago. And uh, they, the lead singer, his, uh, let's say his voice has been maybe ravaged by the temptations of the road. So that was a bit of a bummer. But I do love Echo and the Bunny. You know, that kind of whole uh, goth first wave. I think there's a lot to be offered. But it, it's funny to me. I mean, you, you know, it's clearly not the doors. I don't know why she would mistake. I mean, if you are not like a fan of the doors, I know for myself, like I've, I'm familiar with that song. But as I was watching the movie, I thought, I don't think this is the doors version, but I'm not sure. And I watched the credits to find out. And one thing I do notice, especially in reading old reviews sometimes, is that with the internet didn't exist. And if you didn't take notes on something while you were watching the movie, you might not know. Ebert, I'm pretty sure it was Ebert, 
in his review gets like a key point of the plot completely wrong in this movie. Um, and there's no way to check. So I will give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she wasn't a Doors fan and she just kind of knew the name of that song and assumed that was that version, which is fair. There's a giant Jim Morrison poster in the like cave where the vampires have their headquarters. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, when reading that book, they were talking about how they were modeling that Kiefer Sutherland character kind of after the mystique of Jim Morrison. And as you saw, Josh, throughout the movie, they did light a few fires. They did. It seemed like more they were modeling Jason Patrick after Jim Morrison. There's one dissolve where they literally dissolve from Jim Morrison's face on that poster to Jason Patrick's face looking exactly the same. You're right. Maybe that was the case, too. But, um, you know, what, what, a, what a hunk. Uh, sure. All three of those guys, we can apply that term to. And Jamie Gertz and Jason Patrick, you know, that, that, that's a good looking vampire, half vampire couple. They sure are. So finally, uh, Michael Wilmington in the LA Times was not really a fan. He said, there's such a disjunction between the slick visuals and the clunking offensive script that the movie befuddles you. How can it be so polished on some levels and so empty at the core? Director Joel Schumacher began as a window designer, and it's in decor that the movie is strongest. Thanks to cinematographer Michael Chapman and designer Bo Welch, it achieves its goal of teen dream MTV horror. Perhaps ironically, Schumacher has tried too hard to make The Lost Boys a good movie, to bring out emotional values. Too much embroidery on bad material sometimes only makes it worse. It's more Lost than Boys, a glossy fiasco with most of the real blood sucked out of it. So the headline is, Michael Wilmington wanted more boys. <laughs> yes. That's what, the uh, there. what, I, I, what was offensive? What did he find offensive in this script? I think it's not so much that it was offensive in the sense that it was like, uh, you know, racist or something. I think it was offensively poorly written. It was offensive to his sensibilities as a critic, I think is what he means. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Schumacher took over, he brought in Jeffrey Bohm, and that guy has written Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, Inner Space. So he's got a pretty good track record there. I don't know. And, you know, he mentioned Chapman and Welsh, who we've talked about Chapman. He's only filmed little movies like Raging Bull and, you know, The Taxi Driver. So whatever. Um, and Bo Welsh is a big name in production design. So I get that. That I know what he's saying. The technical is ahead of the rest. But I felt like I felt like it elevated the piece. I don't look at it as a disconnect between those two elements. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think maybe less of a disconnect than he I, than he sees. I wouldn't call the, the writing offensive, but just kind of mediocre. And I, I feel like also to me, the acting is not great. And that's a big thing. If you've got a cool style. And a mediocre script, you need your actors to really elevate it. And I didn't feel like that they did that. But but yeah, I mean, those guys are great. Bo Welsh worked a lot with Tim Burton later on. And, um, you know, we may have talked about him when we've talked about Burton. And there's a lot of talent in that craft area. But I think less so in the performances. Um, and that really brings it down for me. I guess, you know, how much of that falls on Schumacher, right? Because <clears throat> if that's your opinion and that's fine, like, you know, these are teen actors. They all, they all kind of had this idea of like, we don't really know what we're making. So they kind of would have needed a strong vision to kind of 
push that forward. I don't feel the same way as you about it. I thought, you know, the acting was fine. It's an 80s teen movie. And obviously this elevated all of them. But I, I think, you know, you got to, the buck has to stop a, ahead of just the gang on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they all, you know, in terms of those younger actors, like they look good. You can see how this, they have charisma. You can see how this would have led to bigger things for them. But I just think it's not necessarily their best work or representative of what they can do. Did you feel when Alex Winter, you know, Michael, he needed to do it in a different way because that was really the only thing. He yeah, he really had nothing to do in this film. I mean, all of the other members of the gang other than Kiefer Sutherland and none of the other guys in that gang are as famous as Alex Winter, but they all have like nothing to say pretty much. They just they just hang out behind Kiefer Sutherland and, and you know, uh, look at him or whatever. Look menacing. Right, so. exactly. I, I mean, you know, I, you could argue that there are so many characters in this movie that if you added a bit more to them, it might be too much. But I agree you could have, you know, maybe one of them wanted to be a Broadway star. <laughs> that would have been an interesting twist. One of them just wants to live the quiet life on a farm. You know, oh, I, would have, no. I wanted to know the dreams of these vampires, Josh. Okay. Uh, Jason, did you see this movie in the 80s? I feel like Josh, this might be a reason why we're not as into it. Josh, guess what? Mm. This was my first time ever seeing The Lost Boys. Wow. Yeah. But wow. I, I do think this is a movie that if you saw this at a certain formative time, it probably meant a lot more to you than if you first saw it, you know, in your 40s. I, I think so. I mean, that that happens with other 80s movies too, right? right. You could see why they were so, like, uh, they captured the imagination of that group. Um, and then you're like, eh, yeah, I get it, but it's not for me. But, you know, it it is fun to look back at these anyway, because this, you know, like I said, the ultimate history of the 80s teen movie, like this dude wrote like a almost 400 page book on this because that was such a strong genre then. And, you know, teen movies now still exist, but it's not like the world beaters that they were back in the 80s. Right. This is certainly like the height of that genre. We think of it. Um... And I, too, did not see this movie back then, although this is the kind of movie that I would have seen, I think, uh, that I would have really wanted to see. So I'm not really sure why I never got to it until much later. And I think actually the first time I watched this movie was when one of the belated direct-to-video sequels came out in 2008. And yeah. I wrote about that and thus watched this. And... um yeah, was was pretty underwhelmed at that time. Although I will say it's better than the sequel. <laughs> Did you watch both the sequels? <laughs> no, at the time. I mean, the one came out in 2008 and then the next one came out a couple years later and I never wrote about the second one and I wasn't going to watch them this week for this podcast. So, so no, I've only seen um, The Tribe, I think, which is the second one, which basically just rehashes the plot of the Lost Boys with different characters uh, featuring Angus Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland's mm. half brother, um, and Corey Feldman, of course. So, yeah. So, I mean, I remember being kind of whatever about it then, and I felt the same way this time. So, Dave, had you seen this in your uh, formative years? I definitely had seen it a few times, but I never really loved it. I always just kind of liked it. And my first time watching it in decades was last Halloween, actually. And uh, I, Really didn't like it last year, but when I watched it this time, I liked it a little bit more. I don't know, something about it kind of clicked a little more, but I'm still lukewarm on it. I, I feel like me and Jason are on kind of the same level here. 
Yeah, that's why we're going as the Frog Brothers for Halloween. <laughs> Hell yeah. I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> so uh, anything else you want to say about the background of this, Jason? Uh, the third one's called The Thirst. So, you know, now you have the trilogy there. And, you know, there have always been rumors of a reboot or a fourth movie, a Frog Brothers TV show. And I mean, this is a, there's definitely a, a content well here to be mined. So we'll see what happens, Josh. And that's the best thing you can say about any movie is that it's a content well to be mined. So. Josh, we just got through a strike and we're almost done with another one, hopefully. But are movies even a thing? Isn't everything content now? Sadly, it is, including podcasts. We'll come back and talk mm-hmm. more of our general thoughts on The Lost Boys. More content coming soon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Halloween episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about teen vampire movie Lost, or The Lost Boys, sorry. They get rid of the definite article for the sequels, for whatever reason. Mm. <laughs> they lost the lost. The, no, they lost the the. The. They lost yeah. the the in The Lost Boys, is what I meant to say. Of course you did. Awesome grammar year. Yeah. Are there any lost <laughs> girls in the sequel? Um, not that I recall, but again, I haven't seen it in like 15 years, so maybe. And, uh, I believe the lost girls was one of the, the sequels that Joel Schumacher was trying to get off the ground right. for years after this was made. That makes sense. Yeah. I would go I mean, for that. It, and maybe if they do a reboot, they'll, they'll do something like that. But, um, it was mainly about the boys, I think, even in those sequels, but here in this film, we're also about the boys, I guess. But we have one lost girl, right? We got Jamie Gertz. She's also she's half lost, right? She's half lost, but she doesn't want to be lost. She wants to be found. Yes, yes, she does, and she gets to be at the end. Spoiler. So uh, happy Jason, You like this a little more than I did. Do you want to say anything else? What else you liked about it? Uh, I feel there was a missed opportunity by not playing more Echo and the Buddymen songs. I mean, if you listen to Echo and the Buddymen, how do you not have the Killing Moon in here? You know, but uh, mm. um, no, I like it. It's definitely like '80s cheese delight, you know, which I like all that stuff. Schumacher totally plays up like you know fog machines and you know uh, flying through the air. Some of the effects just look like a dude standing in front of a, a, a background going, moving his arms and waving, right? You know, um, but it's fun. I don't love it. As I said, the first two acts, the first hour, I was quite enjoying. And, you know, it's always fun to watch these teen movies from back then. But then it just totally goes off the rails in that three, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like they don't really, as you were saying, apparently was the case. They didn't really know what kind of movie they were trying to make. And it's like, is this a teen comedy? Is it a romance? Is it a horror movie? Is it about the family dynamic? Is it about the gang? Is it, do we want to care about the romance between Jason Patrick and Jamie Gertz? Is it more about the relationship between the brothers? And it's just, none of it really comes together. Well, I mean, Michael, Jason Patrick is the kind of center point in all those elements, right? So, um, you know, I do think the way he becomes half vampire uh, and kids, here's a lesson. Don't succumb to peer pressure when uh, vampires are telling you to drink bottles of blood. Because you turn into a half vampire. And we don't want that for you, kids. I mean, maybe no. you want that. Mm-hmm. Then you can go for it. But I would say go full vampire if you're going to do it. So, well, um, I mean, he could have gone full vampire, but he decides that he doesn't want to. 
he's dipping his toes in both worlds, Josh. Yeah, he's uh, by Bambi. I don't know what the <laughs> word there would be. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I didn't mind. I didn't mind all those elements. They came back to him. We learned this. We learned that. But then, you know, in Act Three, when you get this, the kind of spoilers all the way through right here right yeah. you get the you get the murders of the vampires you know they killed the lost boys and and the, there's some good stuff there and then jason patrick jamie gertz and, and little laddie they don't feel any better right right so, right and little little an aside what the hell was that character <laughs> little laddie who has like no lines are just like oh yeah we also have this random little kid with us who was also maybe a half vampire. it feels like he was left over from that early version of the script where it was about kids i almost wonder if they were like uh, you know this didn't happen but like you know alan ladd jr was such a champion of um uh, filmmakers back in the day, I almost wonder if they were like, let's write a character in for him, just call him Laddie, you know, or something like that. But so then you get to this bigger reveal of who the real head vampire is. Um, and and that just doesn't, doesn't, that feels like very flaccid. It goes, wah, 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 you know, yeah, and so. It, it's so like, you know, Jason, you were always complaining about the plot holes and there's a whole long scene Right. Because the real head vampire guy, it turns out it's the 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 like video store owner or whatever who's dating Diane Weist. Right. And they think he's the, the, the frog brothers and Corey Haim are convinced he's the vampire. So they, they do this whole test of him at dinner. Right. They feed him garlic and they make him look in the mirror. The lights, yeah, right. And all this stuff. And he passes the test and they're like, OK, he's not the guy. And then the twist is that he really is the guy. And they're like, but you passed all the tests. And he's like, well, you know, if you invite a vampire in your home, then uh, like waves it all away. Like, what are the fucking rules of vampires in this movie? I agree. I agree. It kind of, you know, you could see the influences of this on True Blood, but I think True Blood, at least those first few seasons, played a more clear path of what vampires can and cannot. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, to me, like, an essential thing. Like, you can make your own rules. You want to say, like, oh, in our movie, vampires aren't affected by garlic or by crosses, or you can see them in the mirror or whatever. Like, fine, but make the rules consistent. Like, set the rules and then follow the rules. And it just, that really annoyed me. (laughs) And I think, Josh, you and I both have issues with movies where, like, arbitrary side character who is never menacing at all turns out to be criminal mastermind or whatever it is right like it's like oh it's that guy come on you know so so that falls flat for sure right but i was happy that diane weiss worked in a video store what a a time to be alive yeah again Mm -hmm. she was to me the only like real bright spot of this film but but i mean also i felt like the scene where they like go overboard trying to test him and diane weiss is all annoyed with them it was like okay thematically maybe this has something you know, about the family dynamic and she's divorced and they're kind of uncomfortable that she's now dating someone. And so they immediately jump to this conclusion about him and then they turn out to be wrong. I thought, okay, that's a, that's a sort of family character development thing. And then at the end, they're just like, no, 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 they were right. He was a vampire. Yeah. I thought they were going to find him dead when they went to like visit him, that the vampires would have eaten him. And that's another kind of, I guess, inconsistency where like the dog who, the family owns Nanook every time there's a vampire nearby it barks right and then so you're under the impression that dogs can sense vampires 
But then Head Vampire owns a dog and then he barks at people. Is he a vampire dog, Josh? Because I'm all for that movie. I think he's like a hellhound or something. There's a one point where they talk about the Frog Brothers, I think, talk about how vampires have these like uh, animal guardians or something like that. And I think that's the idea there Mm. is that that's his whatever. And, And when she goes to the house and the dog barks at her and tries to attack her and we don't see him. I think maybe they're meaning us to think what you thought, and I did too, that like, oh, he's dead, and this dog has now been, you know, co-opted by the teen vampires or whatever. Um, But it is all kind of unclear. You know, going back to the original idea, you know, if it was the Frog Brothers and Corey Haim, and their whole thing was like, we got to hunt the vampires to save the town, right? Very 80s uh, teen fun. But it you know, I don't think it would have worked as well at that point in time, you know, because we had moved to this new state of, I don't know, more adult teen movies, I guess you would call them, or uh, the MTV kind of uh, aesthetic, right? So all the things that don't work probably also helped it along with the box office that kind of look over, sizzle over steak, shall we say, you know, but um uh, I don't. I agree with you. Those are things that don't work, and I just got to deal with them and wonder what could have been. I do like the uh, kill of Alex Winter. That was a cool kill where the Frog Brothers—they're all, all. First of all, you see all these vampires sleeping in their cave upside down. That's a good reveal. And then the Frog Brothers uh, go climb up where they're hanging from the ceiling, and they stake him in the heart. That was a good kill. Yeah, and then he just like spurts massive amounts of blood everywhere. Well, I also like that vampires could die in different ways. I thought that played to the idea of like, hey, you never know what's going to happen and we can showcase all these kills in different ways. Like the dude who goes into the garlic bathtub and he's like, it's just garlic. And then it's like, it's holy water and garlic. And then he just kind of disintegrates and talk about a blood uh, spill. That that was a a real deluge. A blood bath, if you But right, I mean, that's another one of those things that's like, okay, so maybe garlic doesn't affect these vampires. Like, fine, that's 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 fine if that's one of your rules, but just just make it clear, make it consistent. I'll tell you what, Josh, uh, you know, I know you don't know I'm going to do this, but uh, last night, Josh and I were on the phone and Josh pitched me a hell of a horror movie idea with uh, with a (laughs) former 80s teen star, Josh. Why, Why don't you pitch that one right now? This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Jason just found this amusing. We were. I love that you two talk on the phone. By the way, yeah, That's well, great. you know, we're we're friends, we're buddies, we're buddies. We like to chat. Yeah. You know? We're like frog brothers. That <laughs> right. We're gonna go hunt some vampires later. <laughs> For, I think Jason was speculating that C. Thomas Howell was involved in this movie or another eighties. No, vampire. not in this movie, but was he involved in an eighties vampire? Yeah, and 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 I wasn't sure if that was the case, but he's definitely not in this movie. But my suggestion was that he should star. Not in a vampire movie, but in a werewolf movie called C. Thomas Howell. And uh, Jason found that very amusing. And I appreciate your support of my little joke, Jason. Thank you. Dave Dave likes it too. It's a, it's a great idea. Yeah. I think we beat right. this thing out. Now it's out in the world yeah. and someone can, can run with it from listening to this podcast. Do you know that Wonderful. story about like uh, Prince where like, he would wake up at two or three in the morning and he'd call people and he'd be like, Hey, you know, he'd call musicians. He's like, Hey, what are you doing? Like sleeping. And he's like, well, come over. I got to record. And he's like, no. And they're like, this wait till the morning. And he's like, no, we have to do this now. And the reason was he always said like, if I don't record this now, 
then Michael Jackson might record it, you know, before I yeah. get to it or something, you know, once the idea is out there, if you don't use it, it will find its way to someone else. I love that kind of artistic theory. All right. So by that theory, you're saying that that now, <laughs> because this idea is out there, someone is going to make this this film. The only thing is we have proof that you have documented it here, Josh. But well, because of this podcast. Thank yeah. goodness for that. Should we should we keep yeah. talking about the Lost Boys, maybe? You know who's a lost boy? See Thomas Howe. Where is he he's, now, He's not. He's there not he a lost boy. He's not in this film. He was a big 80s teen star, which I assume is why you thought of him. But uh, he's not in this film. In this film. So uh, yeah. maybe we'll talk about him in further detail with another film that he is in. Maybe, Josh. I thought, you know, things that did work for me in this were, like, uh, like I said, I think that you're not giving enough credit to Corey Haim as, uh, you know, the Frog Brothers too, but Corey Haim is really like the kind of part of the movie. And I think he does a good job and his comic timing is really there. You know, he, he was a guy who became a star because he used to accompany his uh, sister to auditions. And then he's like, ah, I guess I'll audition for things too. And I think that he has a natural charisma and, you know, this idea of like him playing, where there are all these bad boys. He's like the innocent young hung. You can see why he developed such a following. Um, I was reading in this book, again, this is going off the rails here, but they all used to hang out at this uh, underage club in like Hollywood called like Alfie Soda Pop Shop. And it's like, Corey Hay, Nicole Egger, Alyssa Milano, Corey Feldman, who will be there tonight? And they all probably just dated each other. I'm sure they did. Yes. That's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I... I like I said, I can see how this movie helped these people become bigger stars, that they have some charisma. I just think the acting, and and like you were saying earlier, it, uh, some blame for that falls on Schumacher because he's, especially these are young actors, and some of them have a lot of experience for being so young, but still, you know, he's got to be able to guide them, and maybe he just didn't really have a handle on what kind of movie he was making. And so the performances are a bit all over the place. Or Corey Feldman comes in and is like, I'm going to do this voice the whole time. And Schumacher just says, oh, oh okay, sure, Corey Feldman, you do that. And- uh, I'm glad that you brought up that Christian Bale modeled his Batman performance on Corey <laughs> Feldman's Frog Brother. Though. That was so good true. of you. So Josh, true. did you ever read Batman number 14? You're a comic book guy. Batman number 14 from like the, the 40s or something? That was the... That was the comic book that he was talking oh, about in the store. Right. Yeah, that's weird. No, I did not. I mean, because he, as he says there, he says there's only like five existing copies or something. Right. I don't know if that's true. But if it was Batman number 14, like the original Batman series, then yeah, that's from like the early 40s or something. So I have not read it or a reprint of it. Presumably. I liked, uh, have you, have either of you ever been up to Santa Cruz where the movie was shot for the most part? Um I have not. I don't think so. I have. I've done. A, I did a day on the boardwalk there. Uh, in the by the way, Santa Cruz. You see Santa Cruz, maybe the best name for a college mascot in uh, all of in all of the collegiate system. The UC Santa Cruz banana slugs. Mm. I do like them. But that boardwalk is super fun, and I think this whole eighties horrific setting of boardwalk comic book store not that they don't have those still video store like if they really like steep it in like hey what do people like right now hey i'm a vampire i'm gonna go work at sam goody or something like you know so hell yeah i like that um 
you know, I like the super cheese stuff of like, oh, cool, we're on the boardwalk and there's a muscular man playing saxophone to a huge, um, you know, audience. I think you see like the influence of this on stuff like um, Point Break. You could definitely see how Point Break uh, kind of takes stuff from this. And I like all that stuff. I like the setting. And I thought that Schumacher's over-the-top aesthetic really added to it. And I know where you're saying it falls off. But um, yeah, those are the things I like. Yeah, I mean, I do like that setting. Um, Santa Carla is the name of this fictional town, which apparently is the murder capital. It seems like... They say it was the in the... Santa Cruz was once the murder capital of the world in the 70s, right? Okay, was it? Yeah, because it seems like that would get more media attention and nobody really kind of seems alarmed about this fact that all these people are constantly dying and not just dying. It's not just like, oh, we have a gang problem, which would be bad, but like mysteriously disappearing and never being found. Yeah, they're the real lost boys. Yeah. There's the final line from the grandpa that, you know, the biggest problem is all the vampires, which is great. But, uh, you know, that just shows that, like, they know that this stuff's happening. It's just, you know, it's nonsense. It's Yeah, right. It's nonsense. If that's the case, (laughs) then why don't they, like, do something about it? Or why doesn't the grandpa (laughs) tell his family, like, hey... Now that you're living living with me here, maybe watch out for vampires that I am fully aware of and are a problem in this town. Well, because you Josh, can't, you can't use logic. The, no, you can with the grandfather because he is very um, uh, possessive of you know his uh, material goods. You know he's got his own shelf on the refrigerator. You can't drink his root beer. You yeah, can't but take he's his not car tell out, his own right? family to watch out for blood sucking demons. Do you really think he loves him that much? He seemed like he was doing fine without him. Um, you know, having embracing them living in his home. Josh, he's out every night banging the widow Johnson. Let's not kid ourselves. Here. <laughs> that is true. And his weird jalopy with its uh, little horn and whatnot. Um, I feel like that was also was sort of a missed opportunity to do more fun stuff with the with the grandpa. And, oh, like, agreed. Have him be part of the big battle at the end or something like if you want to have that reveal, why not reveal that he's like a vampire hunter or something? And the Frog Brothers are just idiot kids. Or he's the head vampire. Or that. That could have been a reveal, too. So, I mean, I agree with you also. Like, why not have a double date with the mom and the, the head vampire and the widow Johnson and grandpa? Yeah, we never even see the widow Johnson on screen. Who knows who she could be? But I will say I agree with you about the setting, that they use it well, and it is cool. The The boardwalk and the video store and the comic book store, it definitely feels like, hey, here's things that 80s teens are into or whatever. And and it that's why it starts out thinking, seeming like it'll be kind of fun. And I feel like it just is a mess after that, really. The people of Santa Cruz, so they could film there, but they couldn't use the real name, Santa Cruz. So that was, yeah. that was a thing. Yeah, I um, want it to be known as the murder capital. Vampire the capital. Anymore. Yeah, the vampire <laughs> capital, yeah. Also, Josh, it would have been good to use more of the rival gang, the surf Nazis, you know? To... Yeah, they didn't really do much. I think it's no, they got surf, eaten. Surf Nazis Must Die, isn't that like a, a trauma movie, movie or something, I want to say? Or it's a movie of some kind. Yeah. Josh, I think we could rate this thing, though. What do you yeah, think? I think we might as well do it. Do you want to rate it out of five shirtless saxophone players? No, Josh. Normally, I would say yes to that. But Josh, Jamie Gertz's name 
in this movie is star. So we're going to rate this out of five stars. Oh, oh all right. Okay. Stars. Five stars. I'm going to give it two and a half stars. It's not that bad, but I don't really feel like this is a classic in any way. I give it three stars. You know where I stand on it. And uh, Jamie Gertz. She did well for herself. Sure. Good for Jamie Gertz. Uh, Dave, what would you rate this? Uh, well, that that shirtless saxophone player, uh, Tim Capello, the I Still Believe scene, I would give that five stars, <laughs> yes. but I give the overall movie three stars. So. Fair enough. T- Tim Capello, another good uh, Halloween costume. Dave, have you had Hell any yeah. shirtless saxophone players on your albums? I, I should. I wish. I really wish. I used to play saxophone in elementary school, and um, I, if you give me a saxophone, Dave, I will cl- I will happily do a topless number for you. Let's go. I can't Let's wait. Go. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of the Lost Boys. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about our special Halloween pick, The Lost Boys. And we already mentioned a bit sort of the franchise that this grew into. It, it Despite being a medium-sized hit, it never had a direct sequel immediately later. Joel Schumacher was aiming to get something going, including a sequel called The Lost Girls, apparently... Uh, I guess Kiefer Sutherland's character, who is seems kind of dead at the end of this movie, uh, but maybe was not dead enough, was going to potentially come back. But that movie never happened. No sequel. Schumacher never made a sequel. Eventually, there were those two direct-to-video sequels, Lost Boys, The Tribe in 2008, and Lost Boys, The Thirst in 2010. Corey Feldman was the only cast member to return for both of those as the one frog brother. Corey Haim has a very brief cameo. I think it's like a post-credits cameo in that first sequel. And that also does feature Angus Sutherland as the main vampire. And then Jameson Newlander, who played the other frog brother, shows up in The Thirst, which I have not seen, but apparently that one's more about like the frog brothers going on a new mission to take down some different vampires. Whereas that first sequel, I think pretty, I think it takes place in Santa Carla again. And it's like, some other family moves in and like the vampire gang goes after them. And it's really just a rehash of the original. Yeah. I mean, the real, the real um, sequels, Josh, are the thrust of these stars onto mainstream America. Yes. And that, that is true. I mean, we, you know, there's so many stars. I don't know if we want to go through all of them, but of course the Corys were huge in the eighties, you know, teaming up and like license to drive and dream a little dream and then both of them had a lot of issues with substance abuse. And uh, Corey Haim sadly passed away in 2010. But uh, before that, they did their reality show, The Two Corys, which actually was going at the time of that first Lost Boys sequel and loved the production of that sequel. And Corey Feldman trying to get Corey Haim to like be sober enough to appear in it, I think is like one of the major elements of that season. After Corey Haim's first stint in rehab, he made a documentary that I believe one of his co-stars in The Lost Boys like told him, like, hey, you should make this called Corey Haim, Me, Myself, and I. And it was like a 35-minute movie just being like, hey, look at how good things are. But it, it was not. It was like a Britney Spears comeback. It, it showed that she needed more help more than um, that she was back. Yeah. I mean, and sadly, he... I mean, Corey Feldman tried to help him. But you know, if you need help, 
Corey Feldman is maybe not the number one guy to help you. But, you know, I know, you you know, he's an obvious punchline, but and he I think his message gets lost in the way he delivers it. But, you know, uh, you know, he's trying to stop pedophiles. So that's a good thing. Right. That is. But I think you're absolutely right, is that because he himself is so uh, unreliable that whatever message he's trying to get out and whatever truth there is within his message, people don't take him seriously because he's also doing all sorts of erratic, you know, strange things himself. And, you know, and he continues doing that. He's got his weird music career and his obsession with Michael Jackson and uh, all sorts of stuff. But he did. He also made a documentary like more recently, I think, where he supposedly exposed all of this, this pedophilia and abuse of both him and Corey Haim. And, 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 you know, some of that or even all of it may be true. But I think you're right that no one is really paying attention to it because he doesn't seem like a stable like sane person yeah i mean i think again we're talking about uh kid actors who needed protection in a lot of ways you know obviously that would be the most serious way but like you know the access they had to drugs and alcohol and every every actor who was in this movie was like yeah we were in a party town and there was a lot of downtime and it was the most debaucherous summer of our lives. And I mean, this movie is full of debauchery. So I think they just kind of took that spirit and ran with it off screen here. I mean, you know, if you look at all the like, didn't Kiefer Sutherland also have an alcohol problem? I mean, a lot of these guys needed some type of um, professional assistance to get off of whatever they were on around this time, I think. Right. No, that's true. And I mean, unfortunately, the Corys just never really turned that around as opposed to these other guys. So Dave, have you ever seen the Lifetime movie, A Tale of Two Corys? I'm pretty sure, but it's been a long time, but I, I'm sure it's uh, fascinating. Yeah, I haven't, but I guess it was actually produced by Corey Feldman and uh, Jameson Newlander has a cameo in it as not as himself, though, weirdly. So uh, something to watch. probably. Corey Feldman was in over 100 television commercials and 50 TV series. In the 80s, not to mention all the, you know, Goonies, Gremlins, Stand By Me. These are like iconic 80s movies that he did. He was a huge star. He was. He was absolutely at that time. Um, and, you know, it just he kind of burned out quickly on in that stardom. You know, Kiefer Sutherland, I think of all of these people, he's the one who's had the most sustained, successful, acclaimed career you know, in film and in TV. I think we talked about him when we did our episode on A Few Good Men, but of course, you know, 24 that he did for many, many years, designated survivor. He also must have worked well with Joel Schumacher. They made several more movies together, Flatliners, A Time to Kill, Phone Booth. He's in all of those. And uh, just this week as we're recording this, he's got a new movie. He's in William Friedkin's final film, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which has been getting a lot of good reviews. I'm excited to watch that. And then after that, he's doing Eastwood's supposedly last movie, Juror Number Two. Um, Josh, the kind of, you know, it's always fun to go back because like we talked about, like there are, they're also intertwined in so many weird, incestuous relationship ways. Like um, Robert Downey Jr. and Sarah Jessica Parker were living together as a couple. And then Robert Downey Jr. was too drugged out and Kiefer Sutherland was living there. And then he ended up with Sarah Jessica Parker. And then of course he and Julia Roberts were, were going to get married and she called it off. And then three days later, 
on their wedding day, she went to Ireland with Jason Patrick. It's like everyone is effing everyone. And what a time, time, Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of 24, Josh, I have more to say on that, but there's no time, Josh. There's no time. <laughs> Thank you for that very loud impression of Jack Bauer. <laughs> he did it in every episode. That's what he did, you know. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned Jason Patrick. This was, I think, his is either his like first or second role at all. You know, this was a big breakout. No, not his first because he was in Solar Babies with Jamie Gertz the year before. There you go. So I think that might have been his first role. And, and the two of them reteamed on this. And he was never quite as big a star, but he works very steadily. I mean, he had some big movies in like the 90s and the early 2000s, uh, Narc and Sleepers. And uh, unfortunately, replacing Keanu Reeves as the star of Speed 2. Um, these days, mm-hmm. he's mostly in a lot of B-movies. I think like pretty much all of his credits for the last like 10 plus years were movies I'd never heard of, but he's working steadily. Well, he does some Broadway here and there, and uh, he's Jackie Gleason's grandson, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, but Josh, you can't just brush over Narc and not talk about the genius of the film Narc, Mr. Joe Carnahan. That is an all-timer right there. I know you're a big Joe Carnahan fan. I love that movie, too. It's a dope movie. Yeah. Um, Diane Weist, as you said, I think we've talked about her before, but, you know, brilliant. Two Oscars for both for Hannah and Her Sisters and Bullets Over Broadway. Tons of films. I always remember her in uh, Edward Scissorhands. And, yeah, uh, that's what I remember her, too. She's on... Uh, she's, she's been caught up in the Taylor Sheridan Empire and is currently on Mayor of Kingstown. So, good for her. Uh, I watched Mayor of Kingstown and they asked her character like, hey, what do you think about this? And she was like, there's no time. No, no, that didn't work at all. No, well, Josh, I could try. Uh, She's going to be in the prequel to Rosemary's Baby Apartment 7A. So that fits in with our Halloween. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll just move on then, Josh. Yeah. Should we talk about Joel Schumacher? We seem to have a very, uh, you know, much like Chris Columbus, maybe a contentious view. I'm saying this guy's a hack. He's a, he's a, whether you like some of his movies, he's a hack. I looked up, I looked up the filmography. First of all, he was not just a production designer, you know, he wrote a lot of movies too, including Car Wash and The Wiz, Josh, DC Cab. So he's working in a lot of, uh, disparate, uh, different uh, kind of genres here. And, uh, you know, St. Elmo's Fire talking about John Hughes. That's that's right up that John Hughes alley. But Josh, I feel like, look, Falling Down and Tigerland, those are both really good movies. I haven't seen Tigerland and I haven't seen Falling Down in a very, very long time. And I feel like that's the kind of movie that maybe hasn't aged well. But yeah, it definitely you couldn't make it today. But at the time, it was a very cool movie. Yeah, I mean, of course, he's notorious for making uh, Batman and Robin, which is still known as like one of the worst Hollywood movies ever. And and later in his career is just a, a string of absolutely atrocious movies. Eight Millimeter, The Number 23, 12, Trespass, which manages to be one of the worst of those terrible like Nicolas Cage direct-to-video thrillers. Um, I mean, just just utter garbage for like years and years okay (laughs) and those movies i've seen i've never seen saint elmo's fire or tigerland but i've seen all those terrible thrillers phone booth was pretty good i agree with Kiefer sutherland yeah phone booth is good i'm with you on that yes 
I mean, St. Elmo's Fire is worth watching, especially as we're talking about 80s teen movies, because that's like that next step of a genre that I love, like 20 somethings who can't really figure it out. I don't think it's the best version of that, but it's still a fun movie. And um, yeah, I mean, look, he was a big name for a long time. And uh, Josh, of course, loves to throw dirt on his grave at this point. (laughs) Yes, he did. He did pass away in 2020. I mean, had, I'm sure, a very satisfying career, made a ton of movies, including movies like this that are beloved. And and even Batman and Robin, I think, now has some defenders. But um, in terms of Lost Boys, there is supposedly a remake in the works that's going to be directed by Jonathan Entwistle the creator of that Netflix series, The End of the Fucking World, and uh, Noah Jupe and Jaden Martell are set to star in it. I'm not sure which uh, parts those guys are playing, but, you know, popular teen stars of the moment. So uh, I guess that's a thing. Why not? Alex Winter is going to be in a movie called Absolute Dominion. And he's a, you know, a working documentarian, obviously, with the Bill and Ted uh, comeback, which we've talked about too. But um, he's acting a lot more now. But in uh, Absolute Dominion in 2085 AD, the world has been destroyed by religious warfare. Desperate to save humanity, global governing forces hold a gripping, no-holds-barred martial arts tournament. The last fighter winning gets Absolute absolute Dominion of one faith. And the winner is going to be Kirk Cameron. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds... I don't know about that one, but he was just in that Steven Soderbergh miniseries, uh, Full Circle, which was nice to see him like randomly pop up in that. I watched that and I couldn't place him in that right now. If you ask, he's a, uh, he's, he's a, uh, Timothy Oliphant's lawyer that he goes oh. with in a, in a couple scenes. Interesting. But, that was um, good. Yeah, that was a good show. I would recommend that show. It was, I would also recommend it. And I haven't seen any of his documentaries, but that seems like the main focus of his career these days is directing those documentaries. It's blood sport, but the winner gets to choose religion. I can't yeah, wait. I, I, Hell you know yeah. what? Dave's all about that. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm in. I'm Dave in. Is, Dave is adding that one to his watch list as, oh, we, yeah. as we speak. And that movie, actually, I was, I was wondering if this is the one, and it is the one, that was, uh, that was shot uh, right outside of uh, Las Vegas here. And I think probably people that we know have worked on that. We missed our chance, Dave. We should uh, be consulting yeah. it. Josh, I'm going to run through these. Jamie Gertz, uh, you know, less than zero, square pegs, twister. And she uh, is married to Tony Ressler, and uh, he's a billionaire. And they are part owners of the Milwaukee Brewers and the Atlanta Hawks. Of course, Seinfeld fans will recognize her for not being able to spare a square. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, can't do better than marrying a billionaire, right? That's pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, I'd like to marry a billionaire. I think they were married before he was a billionaire, too. So, like, they've been married. Good instincts on her part. Yeah. Way to go, Gertz. Um, go out and girts it. I don't know what that means. Edward Herman, who played Max, the head vampire, was a director, a writer, an actor. Uh, he played Franklin Roosevelt in the miniseries Eleanor and Franklin and in the film musical Annie. You remember Annie, Josh? Sadly, I do. And he was, uh, you will remember him as the dad, Richard Gilmore on Gilmore Girls. Yeah, I definitely always think of him as from Gilmore Girls. Yeah, he's got an Emmy for the practice and he's been in movies like The Aviator and Reds. He's got a Tony for Mrs. Warren's profession for best featured actor, a very storied career, as did have Barnard Hughes, who played the grandpa. He was in more than 400 theater uh, roles, which is pretty awesome, dude. And uh, he won a Tony Award for best actor in Da, and he was also in the movie version of that. 
All right. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen him in other, if he was in 400 movies, I probably have seen him in something else, but did not recognize him. Yeah. I mean, this is, he also has an Emmy for his work on Lou Grant. Oh, that I have not watched, but uh, this is, yeah, this is such a stacked cast. I mean, so many people who've had these, these major careers going forward from this, but uh, I think that covers it. Do you want to say anything else about the legacy of this movie, Jason? Thank you. Thank you. I You're really I'm glad that that like over time the amount of singing that Jason does on this podcast has steadily increased. Dave, pick all those clips and let's drop an album. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Love to hear that along with your saxophone playing, which I'm sure has only improved since elementary school. It'll be way better because <laughs> um I'm gonna be doing it without a shirt this time. Nice. That's the Lost Boys, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh Suck trick or treat with online. us yeah <laughs> trick or treat with us online and on social media we're at awesomemovieyear.com awesome movie year on facebook and twitter our instagram is still terrible it's awesome movie pod i believe on twitter but what it doesn't else? matter twitter's not even a thing anymore yeah right? no i think so. i think twitter is about to implode but we're still there <laughs> yeah. for now and it's 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 x someone has staked the heart of twitter and his name was elon <laughs> musk so indeed, um, yes. mm-hmm. i'm jason harris comedy or jay harris comedy and all the things eat this comedy also a thing shows coming up in november hooray for that also go for jason on letterbox come on jump join the club jason also available for hire birthday parties bar mitzvahs whatever you got going he needs the work as 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 um as a saxophone player or as, as what as anything right you, oh, you know okay. you need you well, need to we're just taking a month work. off you know yeah. hey, josh when has anyone ever said we're just taking a month off and then has not come back after that month come never, on man never that yeah happened. especially in show business when they tell you it's just going to be this amount of time off it's not like they ever don't come back well we'll uh look on the the bright side there for you hopefully <laughs> you can find me at josh bell hates everything.com just a bunch of old stuff there josh bell hates everything on facebook at signal bleed still on twitter x for now also at signal bleed on letterboxd and on blue sky because i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to get ahead of the end of twitter there by by jumping ship over to blue sky so we'll see how that goes and you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And since it's a Halloween episode, I will plug my new horror movie score, Blind Malice, that just came out this month. Uh, so you can add that to your Halloween playlists. Yeah. Mm. Spooky. Mm-hmm. See, Very Malice spooky. comes in all forms. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Jason, what, what's in our next episode? Josh, I believe our next episode is a companion piece to The Lost Boys called The Last Emperor, the best picture of 1987. Yeah, I'm sure we'll draw a lot of parallels there coming up in that episode. So tune in next time for The Last Emperor. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. The
restraint I just uh, held in yeah, of not plugging my album more content. Your album. Well, you know, when you edit, Jeez. like just put put a yeah. commercial for your album in between segments, and you know, we don't. We yeah, don't. I'll just play the song more as the the playout music. Yeah, so. that's okay. Whatever, whatever <laughs> opportunities you want to take, we'll approve. Yes, all good. You know what? Don't mind if I do. Here's more content. <laughs>